invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Revelation 1. Today we are so blessed to open the Word together and study. If you're with us for the first time, we are in the middle of a study I have entitled, Who We Are. Just giving a reminder, strengthening the foundational truths about the identity and purpose of our church. Usually what I preach is what's called Lectio Continua, which means through books of the Bible, verse by verse. At the beginning of the year, we decided to set aside some time just to tackle this vital subject. Let me read to you Revelation 1, beginning in verse 12. John is speaking. He was describing the revelation of Christ to him on the island of Patmos. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the word of God. The first answer to the question who we are is simply we are Christian. Believe it or not, when you say the word Christian, that doesn't always mean the same thing to the same people. I have been asked on several occasions, and I believe... Karen, our receptionist, has been asked even more than me when people asked about our church when we used to have the name Baptist in our name, Makakilo Baptist Church. People would say, no, is Baptist a, a Christian thing? Or is that some sort of cult or something? What is Christian? As you know, the Christian has come to mean many different things to many different people. Christian, biblically speaking, people have, have deviated from that meaning long ago. In fact, there are whole groups of people who call themselves Christians, and they, they believe and behave nothing like the Christians did in the Bible. You think about mainline Protestant Christianity, these are the more liberal churches in terms of Scripture. They adopt a view that is skeptical of any miracle, skeptical of God's Word, skeptical of Jesus' deity, skeptical of the virgin birth, the resurrection, and so on. Hardly describes the early church, right? Some of you are older than 40. You probably remember a day when Mormons absolutely rejected any kind of association with Christianity. But now they call themselves Christians. Less formally, many people consider themselves Christians simply because they're around Christianity, because they grew up Christian, because they, they feel warmly about the things of God, things of Jesus. They attend church once in a while, and so they therefore conclude that they must be a Christian. Six or eight years ago, I think it was uh, Lena Viliamu who handed me an article from the paper. George Barna, George Barna is a researcher, uh, mostly for religious stuff. He's sort of the Gallup poll of, in the religious world. And he had, done, he had been hired to do a, a research uh, project 
uh, about Christianity in Hawaii. If you didn't know it, in the past 30 or 40 years, the popularity of Christianity has exploded in Hawaii. It's uh, really, really grown, the popularity of Christianity. 30 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, not a lot of people in this state consider themselves Christian. But since then, last 30 or 40 years, not only have we seen churches just sort of pop up on every corner and every uh, uh, theater and every uh, abandoned uh, uh, grocery store, we see churches everywhere, it seems like. Not only that, but now we see many mega churches in Hawaii. There seem to be many, many churches that are thousands of people. Our, our state hosts a, a conference every year called the Hymn Conference, a huge Christian conference, and all these people come. Barnes said his research showed that the amount of people who identify them, themselves as Christian in Hawaii over the last uh, several decades has grown from something like 15% all the way up to over 50% of people in Hawaii designate themselves as Christian. Now, that's not Alabama, but that's a lot of people. Praise the Lord, you may think. Man, that's amazing that Christianity has really gone. Well, there's a catch. Barnes said when he asked on the survey, if they believe that Jesus is God and that He is the only Savior, that the Bible is true, and if they believe the message of Jesus should go out to the world, he said only 4% of people in Hawaii agree with that. So what we have here is not an explosion of true Christianity. What we have is an explosion of false Christianity, an explosion of people who think of themselves as Christian, call themselves Christian, but are not indeed true Christians. Now, I'm not going to get into the reason why that is true here. Definitely not the who is to blame for this state of affairs. My point is that the Bible tells us what Christians were, what they believed, how they worshipped, what they professed, what they confessed with their lips. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to have some broad, all-inclusive definition of Christianity. No, we can just look at the Bible and say, oh, here's what Christians believe. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to acquiesce to this broad definition. Those we find in the early church in Acts, they were the first ones to be called Christian, the followers of Christ. And so if we're going to call ourselves Christian, we must believe and behave like they did. Well, at the ground level, there are things that bring us to the first major point of our identity, Makakilo Bible Church, that is, we are Christian we don't mean culturally Christian. We don't just mean broadly in generic form Christian. We mean Christian in terms of how the Bible defines the Christians. What are those things that we've covered so far? What do we mean, in other words, when we say we are Christian? Number one, we mean we believe in the truth of Scripture. We said that the first Sunday. We believe that the Bible is truly God's Word. It is inspired. These 66 books are infallible. They're inerrant in their original form. They are powerful. They actually, by work of the Spirit on the heart of man, they come to the heart of man and they regenerate someone's heart. They bring a dead heart to life. They are powerful enough to, to sanctify us. The Word of God, the truth and the power of the Word of God is, in fact, we said, sufficient to equip us for every good work. We don't need, no other, we don't need any other revelation. We don't need any other form of God's revelation, some other way of hearing from God. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. In these 66 books, it is truly sufficient. We believe in the truth of Scripture. In the second week, we said in the, in the idea of us being Christian, it means we believe in the triune God. In the Bible, it is revealed to us that God exists 
as three persons with one nature. Three divine persons, all equally God, but these three persons have three roles, and we saw the beauty of these roles interacting, and we we discovered we can not only just believe in the Trinity like it's some sort of distant theological subject that doesn't mean much, we can actually delight in the Trinity as we look at these roles, God giving to the Son, the Son then including all of us in His inheritance, the Spirit coming and changing us and making these things beautiful. We believe in the triune God. Third, last week we said we believe in the fall of mankind. That is, we believe that man sinned in the garden. That sin, we all sinned in the garden with Adam. None of us would have done anything differently. Adam is our perfect federal head. He is our representation for us in the garden, and we all fell. And thus, we are all condemned unless God intervenes. Today, we finish this first mark of our identity that we are Christian. What does it mean? It means that we believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and King. We believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and King. Jesus is indeed the only Savior. He is the only chosen one. He is the only Messiah. He was the only one who was successful where Adam failed. He was the only one providing atonement for sin. He's the only one victorious over sin and death. And so, on his own accomplishment, he is thus crowned king. These are the things that Jesus spoke of throughout his whole ministry, start to finish. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He came to seek and save the lost, to gather the inheritance of a people of God whom God by the Spirit would give to him. And they with him as their king would make up that kingdom. And so Jesus taught that his kingdom in this era is a kingdom that is not of this world, but in the next era it will be of this world. And in fact, in fact, he would return not to seek and save the lost, but to judge and to rule. We believe Jesus Christ, the only Savior, is the true eternal King. All right, let me make three basic points that support this idea, that sort of flow from this fundamental Christian belief. What does this mean? First of all, it means that Jesus came to save His people from their sins. Jesus came to save His people from their sin. This is basically a quote from Matthew chapter 1. You may want to turn there. Matthew chapter 1. Joseph, Jesus' future adopted father, adoptive father, was, he was, of course, troubled by the fact that his betrothed, the lady with whom he was engaged, was pregnant. He was trying to come up with some kind of solution where he could break off the engagement. And back then it meant divorce. You, if you were betrothed, it was more than engagement than we think of today. But he would have to divorce her. He wanted to do it to preserve his reputation and her reputation. He wanted to do it in some sort of quiet, nondescript way. And he was very troubled with this, very nice guy, a good guy. But God was revealing himself then, and he sent an angel, probably Gabriel, we don't, we're not told here. He sends an angel to visit Joseph in a dream. Matthew 1, 18, after the genealogies are listed there, says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is Yeshua in the Hebrew, or Joshua, simply means God saves. Angel is explaining why you would call him Joshua. All the other Joshuas were nothing compared to this Joshua. All the other Jesuses were nothing compared to this Jesus, because this Jesus would actually save souls. He came to save his people from their sins. Now, theologically, and very important for us, this picks up right where we left off last week, right? Last week, we came to that final conclusion that everyone, every human, because of original sin, but, but really uh, because of the sin that, because of original sin, we, we produce in our own lives, every one of us is damned. We are condemned, and we are condemned justly without some sort of divine intervention. God must do something. Something must happen in order for us to be saved. We are totally helpless. We are dead in sin. We all, as humans, we are completely hopeless unless God does something. Well, what did God do? Fundamentally, He sent the second person of the Trinity his son, to come to this earth to save his people from their sins. And the question is, why couldn't God just zap people with salvation? Why couldn't he just from heaven say, you're saved, and people just be saved? Isn't he powerful enough to do that? I'm sure he's powerful. But the answer is because this, if God did that, it would not be just. Sweeping, sweeping a bunch of sin under the carpet would not be just. There has to be a way that sin and evil is dealt with. And if he just zapped people with salvation, he would not be just. He would not preserve his own justice. He would not preserve his own justice in the sense he would, he would take people who maybe on the surface, surface have been zapped with salvation, but they were still sinners. They still had their own righteousness cover, unrighteous covering. He could not allow them into heaven because they would still be unrighteous even if he had zapped them with some sort of form of eternal life. So God's plan was not simply to get people into heaven. God's plan was to execute perfect, holy justice. His saving people must be simultaneously a perfect act of grace and a perfect act of justice. And therefore, He sent His Son. Again, the question of salvation is not just getting someone into heaven. It is getting people to stand before God completely justified. Now, that word justified, I, I know that's not a, a word that a lot of people use a lot in their day-to-day uh, -day language. I know that's a word maybe some people avoid, especially the longer word, justification. But don't be afraid of these words. These are Bible words, and you're smart enough, you can learn what they mean. Sometimes we, we're a little afraid of this for fear of you know, offending people or for fear of turning people away. Hey, I think people are smart. If you tell them a word, you can define it, they can understand it. And this is a word from the Bible. This is not a word that theologians made up. This is a word that comes right out of the book of Romans. These are Bible words. What does justification mean? Well, justification is the act of making someone justified. What is being justified? Justified is standing before God, clear of any sin, and clothed with perfect righteousness. It's been said, I'm justified, therefore I stand before God just if I'd never sinned. 
Yeah, that's true, and that's a good place to start, but it's actually one step further. It's not just if you'd never sin. It's also having been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You stand before God in Christ, clothed in His righteousness. This is what it means to be in Christ. In terms of salvation, God not only sees no sin when He justifies a person, God sees the very righteousness, the perfect life that His Son lived. So I want you to think of it like this. Justification essentially has two parts. One, we are justified by the the covering we see from Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect human life. He didn't just produce perfection up in heaven where there is no corruption. He came to this filthy earth. He lived and was tempted like we are. He lived in this world and He produced absolute perfection. And justification is a process where that righteousness, that absolute perfection that Jesus produced while on earth, that is applied to us, that covers us. It is credited to our account. Second, we are also justified because He paid the penalty for our sin. Now, this is usually what we think of in terms of salvation, that Jesus paid for our sin on the cross. He was our substitute. He atoned for our sin. In fact, the phrase is substitutionary atonement. He, he atoned for our sin. In my place condemned He stood. He took the penalty of sin, and not just in terms of physical punishment, but in terms of the wrath of God. We read all about this in Isaiah 53. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ for our sin, not His. It's a substitutionary atonement. We are justified by putting our faith in Jesus Christ and believing that He produced the righteousness we need and the payment for sin that we need. He was made sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, how does this come to us? How is this applied to an individual? How are we indeed justified before God? How are we saved? Flip over to Romans chapter 4. Romans 4 is, Paul has been making the argument that we cannot be justified by works. We cannot be saved by doing enough good things. He had proved in chapter 3 that there's nobody righteous. And he forwards this idea at the end of chapter 3, Romans 3, that we are justified by faith. In fact, Paul says, this is nothing new. I'm not creating a new religion. This goes right along with everything that was taught to you people from the Old Testament. And he gives the two probably most popular people out of the Old Testament, Abraham and David. Romans chapter 4, verse 1, what shall then we say? was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see what Paul is saying? How is a person justified? How is a person saved from God's wrath? By works? No. Works only give you something to boast about in front of people, not before God. Works count for something on this earth, but not before God. That doesn't save you. How's a person justified? By faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What that means, first of all, is that Abraham believed God about his promises and covenants. God had made a series of of covenants and promises the people before him, and then to Abraham himself, he believed, in essence, he believed the Word of God, that it was indeed true, that it was indeed a representation of exactly what God wanted, exactly what God wanted and demanded of him, of all humans, 
And he trusted God. He trusted God's Word. And in trusting God's Word and in believing God's truth, he, he looked forward, he anticipated the day that the Messiah would come. He didn't know the name Jesus Christ, but he believed in Jesus Christ. He didn't know the story of, uh, of Jesus in, in Bethlehem and then Nazareth, but he looked forward and saw Jesus, this promised one that was coming, and he believed. And Jesus said, Abraham, look to my day and rejoiced. John 8, 56. Abraham, in other words, had faith in Jesus Christ, and that's what saved him. That's what justified him. It also means that when Abraham exerted that faith in God and in the Son, Jesus Christ, his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the perfection of Jesus Christ that Jesus would perform many years later was credited to him or counted to, to him. He was justified on the basis of, of God crediting to Abraham's account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I have a daughter who's headed off to college again here this uh, coming next Saturday, this coming Saturday, and uh, we have a joint bank account with her, and we, uh, from time to time, we put money in that for her to use for whatever she needs. Uh, that money that we put in there, she didn't deserve it. She certainly didn't earn it. We just put that money like slaves into her account. <laughs> when she goes out and uses that money, probably to buy a double-double animal style at In-N-Out, they don't ask her, now, did you earn this money? This money that you're spending, do you deserve it? No, they take that money as though it is hers. Why? Because it's been credited to her account. It is as though it was hers from the beginning. It's as though it was there from the very opening of the account. It's like it was there all along. So when a person understands this Bible too, that this promise of God, that Jesus provides His perfect righteousness upon those or to, to cover those who have faith, this is credited to, the, to their account. Jesus provides His righteousness. He provides His death as an atonement for their sin. He rises victorious over that sin and death. A person placing faith in Jesus Christ, when they do that, that transaction occurs. He is justified. He or she is justified. They stand before God, their sins having been atoned, the righteous covering that they need upon them, God not looking upon them for their performance, for their works, for how much they've accomplished. God rewarding them and including them, the very inheritance that He has for His Son. God counts them righteous, and they are saved. And that person, by the work of the Spirit in their heart, by the mercy of Jesus, is saved. They are justified. And friend, if you, if you believe God's Word here, if you believe that this is true, cry out to God in faith. Simply say, Lord, I believe. I turn from my self-righteousness. I turn from my living life for myself. I, I turn to you. And I believe in Jesus Christ. And if you do this, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, friend, you will be saved. You will be justified. Now, what brings us all home? What makes this all real? What validates the truth of what Jesus accomplished in His life and then on the cross? What validates this is the fact that just as He said, Jesus rose from the grave and He ascended to His throne. This is so vital to our understanding of Jesus 
This is so vital, this validation, the resurrection, the validation of His words and actions and accomplishment on the cross, this is so vital that Paul says in Romans 10, if you believe in Christ and in His resurrection, you will be justified. You will be saved. Why? Because you believe the very things that God, with which God validated His actions, His activity. On the other hand, if you don't believe it, you don't believe in the resurrection, you are defying the very thing that validates what Christ accomplished. You're defying the very thing, you're defying God's approval of what Christ accomplished on earth. In other words, you cannot be saved if you defy the resurrection because you're defying the very thing that God did as a stamp of approval on everything that Jesus accomplished. So this is the second thing we mean when we say believe, we believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and King. It means that we believe, number two, that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to His throne, which of course is the very throne of God. Jesus rose from the dead and He ascended to His throne. The resurrection is the divine approval and evidence of Jesus' sonship and His accomplishment. It tells us that Jesus is indeed God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is everything He said He is. And it validates everything He said in terms of His power, His accomplishment over sin and death. This is God's mark of approval of what Christ did on the cross and what He did in His life. Now think about this. From the very beginning, Christians celebrated the Lord's Day, Sunday. Why do we worship on Sunday? Because the resurrection proved Him right. It proved Him righteous. It proved Him successful. It is the external evidence that Christ indeed is Savior and King. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning of verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead aren't raised. But if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You understand what he's saying? If Christ did not rise, we are to be pitied. Why? Because there's no validation, there's no evidence, there's no reality about what Jesus said, about what He accomplished, about what He did. In fact, it proves that Jesus Christ is a liar because He said He would raise up after three days on multiple occasions. There would be no hope for us in the future. Our own resurrection would be jeopardized. It would not be happening. And the saddest part of it is, us along with billions of people over 20 centuries, we're all fools. We are to be pitied because Christ did not rise. Paul goes on, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Ladies and gentlemen, Christ's resurrection was His crowning work. It was the crowning work of His activity on earth. Paul ties it to our own victory and our own hope. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through 
our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We live, we work, our whole existence, everything we do day to day is full of hope because of the resurrection. It fills us with confidence, it fills us with hope, it inspires us to endure, it inspires us to be steadfast, knowing that our struggle, our, our, what we face in this world, whether it be physical uh, trauma and, and pain and hardship, or whether it be emotional, or whether it be psychological, or things that happen in this world, whether it come from other people, or whether it come from nature itself, we can struggle. And no, it's not in vain. Why? Because of Jesus' resurrection. Now, Jesus' march of victory did not end with the resurrection, did it? After He was raised, He was with His disciples about 40 days, and then what happened? Acts 1, verse 6, they had come together. They asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for You to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon You. You will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Verse 9 And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the coronation of Christ the King. He is ascending to his Father's right hand, and he rules over his kingdom. Philippians 2, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we say we believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and King, we believe not only that the resurrection happened and is the divine approval and evidence of everything Christ is and everything He did, we believe also that the ascension was His royal coronation. It is his ascension not just to the sky and some clouds, it was to the throne as king. And now he reigns eternally. And we believe not only does he reign in a spiritual way, but we also believe, and this is number three, that Jesus will return and physically rule. When we say we believe that Jesus Christ is Savior and King, we believe They're saying, we believe that Jesus Christ will return physically and rule. Jesus Himself said, He, the Son of Man, will return. Matthew 24, verse 30, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they they will gather His elect from the four winds. John said, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. Later on in Revelation, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. Just as He said in John 14, 3, I will come again. I will take you to Myself, that where I am you may be also. He said in Luke chapter 12, Be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in the hour you don't expect. Paul said all Christians, in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
You affirm the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive, who are left, we caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll always be with the Lord. John the Apostle said, Little children abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. 1 John 2, 28. Peter said, 1 Peter 5, 4, when the chief shepherd appears, we will receive the crown of glory and that we should prepare our minds for action, setting our minds on the hope of his return. After 1, verse 13. Luke said in Acts 17, 31, that Jesus has a fixed day when he will arrive again and judge the world. Ladies and gentlemen, you cannot get away from this fact. Jesus will return. He will come, and then His kingdom will not merely be in heaven. It will be over this earth. He will rule. He will judge this earth. Now, for those of us who believe this is a day of great joy, this is a day of great blessing, this is a a thrilling hope for us, but for everyone else, this is a day of dread, a day of judgment, a day of fear. You heard it in some of those verses I just read. In fact, the coming of Jesus, if you're not a believer, should fill you with fear should fill you with dread, because when He returns, your opportunity to have faith will be over. Your opportunity to believe in Christ and be saved will be over. When He returns, He will come to judge and to separate the sheep and the goats. It's all over at that point. And folks, that could happen before I finish this sermon. Our statement of faith says, we believe that the end of the world is approaching, that at the last day Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead from the grave and uh, grave to final retribution, that a solemn separation will take place, that the wicked will be adjudged to endless punishment and the righteous to endless joy, and that this judgment will fix forever the final state of men in heaven or hell. We've gone through these first four weeks defining what it means to be a Christian, what we mean when we say we are Christian. And those four points, if you think about it, are in essence the gospel truth. If you're a true Christian, you are someone who believes the following. First, you believe in the truth of Scripture, that what is conveyed to us in Scripture, namely, really, the climax of which is the message of the gospel. We believe that God has spoken. We believe that God has revealed Himself, revealed truth to us, revealed the message and plan of salvation to us. It truly is God's Word. Second, we believe that the perfect, holy, triune God, that God has lavished upon His Son, this beautiful creation. We have corrupted it, but Jesus seeks to nevertheless share that with us. Third, we indeed believe we have corrupted it. Mankind has fallen. We are corrupt. We deserve God's judgment. But finally, we have faith in Jesus Christ, that He is the only true Savior. He died. He rose. He ascended to the Father as King. And will one day return. It always amazes me. Sometimes even Christians, when you ask them about their Christianity, they're sort of confused. Well, I go to church and I, I pray, I really believe, and they can't articulate some of these basic things. If you want to just mark that in your mind, if, let me just say this. If you are interviewing to be a church member, we're going to sit down with you. We're going to ask you, what's the gospel? What does it mean for you to be a Christian? This is your answer. I've just given it to you. <laughs> I believe in the truth of God's Word. I believe in a triune God. 
I believe that I and all of humanity has fallen, but I believe in Jesus Christ as my King and my Savior. If someone comes to you and asks you, what does it mean to be a Christian? You don't say, well, I go to church and, you know, kind of get involved and there's some sort of social positive things you can do, helping people and being involved. No. You give them this very simple four-point outline. I believe God has revealed Himself perfectly to us in Scripture. He's revealed to us that He is a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we're fallen. And yet the Son came, Jesus Christ. And for all those who believe in Him, they'll never be put to shame. You've come to the end of this first part, really the end of the first sermon. These four weeks, you didn't know it, but this is one continuous sermon with four points. We're going to take a break next week, and then we're going to get back to that question, who we are, and we're going to answer that question. We are Protestant. We're going to learn what that means, not just for the church, but for you and me individually. But the best application so far is to ask yourself that basic question, am I a Christian? Do I believe these things? And not just do I sort of intellectually tick the boxes here, but have I given my life into these things, these four realities, do they define who I am? Do these things underlie every presupposition that I have? If they are, you are indeed a Christian. If you're not, you can become a Christian today. Submit to the truth of Christ, believe in Him, and you will be saved. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd, and if you believe in Him, He will gather you into His flock. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for today. We thank You for Your truth. We thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, who came and laid down His life for many as a ransom for many, so that all who believe their sins would be atoned, they would be clothed in Jesus' righteousness. They would with Him have victory over sin and over death. And they'd be with Him when He comes again and rules forever. Lord, we proclaim that we believe in this. This is really the foundation of who we are as a church. We thank You for Jesus. We thank You for His kindness toward us. We thank You for the unbelievable suffering that He went to to redeem His people. We praise You for Jesus Christ. Move in us this morning. Cause us to love You and to worship You with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.